The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today's episode is Bottled Nose Dolphins of Indian River Lagoon in Florida. And dolphin expert Greg Bosart, Bosart is with me today. Hello, Greg. How are you? Good. Uh, also today, calling in from Louisiana, is Aaron Ziles, who's the campaign director of the Gulf Restoration Network. And he's going to give us an update about uh, what's happening with the, uh, the plumes of contaminated water as a result of the oil spill down in the Gulf of Mexico. And... Um, Aaron will be joining us a little later in the program. Uh, Greg, it's good to have you on the program. Let me just say a little bit about your background. Uh, Gregory D. Bassard is has a VMD and a Ph.D. He's Senior Vice President and Chief Veterinary Officer, Veterinary Pathologist for the Georgia Aquarium in Atlanta. Greg Bassard is also an adjunct professor at Department of Pathology School of Medicine at the University of Miami. For at least seven years, Greg has been researching the bottlenose dolphins of Indian River Lagoon, Florida. Greg, the bottlenose dolphins are quite cosmopolitan. They are found in many areas. Can you tell us about what brought you to Indian River Lagoon and to that specific population of dolphins that live their lives out in that estuary? Well, uh, it's important to note the, the project that we're doing, which, which started in 2003, actually, is a project at Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute at Florida Atlantic University, and that's where I spent the last uh, eight years before coming up here to Atlanta. We started this project um, because we were concerned about some of the pathology we're seeing in stranded animals in this area. The Indian River Lagoon is a large shallow water ecosystem that comprises about 40% of Florida's central east coast, so it's a very large area. Um, at Harbor Branch, we started to see uh, skin lesions on some of these animals, which started to make us worry not only from my perspective from a veterinarian, but from my kind of my other hat, my research hat is, you know, what's going on in, in um, these animals and what may potentially be going on in the ecosystem. Um, since our study began, uh, we have found some very interesting diseases. We've, we've found emerging diseases, um, orogenital tumors that are associated with uh, novel herpes viruses and papillomaviruses. We found <clears throat> a fairly high prevalence of what's called lobomycosis, which is a fungal disease in dolphins in the southern 
Indian River, which um, it's a disease that's very rare, but it's only described in dolphins and humans. Uh, we're finding things like uh, antibiotic resistance. We look at um, bacteria that grows in these dolphins, and we, we test the bacteria to resistance to antibiotics, and we found about a quarter of these dolphins have resistance to antibiotics, which... Um, which is um, a very disturbing sign that antibiotics are getting into the ecosystem and, and working their way up to these animals. So essentially we're breeding like super bacteria. Uh, and then we're finding uh, some contaminant issues, particularly mercury. Mercury levels in these dolphins is up to 21 times higher than the FDA approves us uh, for eating for, for fish for human consumption. So. The study has really evolved over the years now. We're in, <clears throat> into our, our second five-year um, uh, project. We, we have about uh, 50 peer-reviewed publications, which we're very proud of. And we're actually using dolphins now as sentinels uh, for not only ecosystem health but for human health. It turns out dolphins um, can provide an early warning system of potential negative environmental trends. Uh, that may permit better character, characterization and management of impacts on, on this particular ecosystem and human health. Um, so it, it's a really fascinating study that not only has to deal with dolphin health, but it has to do with the health of that ecosystem, which is very large, and the, potentially the health for humans that um, are living in the same coastal environment. Yes, it's, it's quite upsetting for people on the water to see... Uh, Dolphins suffering from this um, skin-eating fungal infection, the lobomycosis you were mentioning. Can you tell us some more about that? Well, lobomycosis is caused by a fungus. It's a very rare disease, um, and uh, as I said, it's only found in dolphins and humans. What um, what's causing this particular uh, having the, this fungal disease, a particular high prevalence in the southern lagoon? Uh, we don't know at this point, but we suspect it may have environmental, um, it may have some environmental uh, cofactor involved. What we have found is that the animals with global mycosis are profoundly immune suppressed. They r literally do not have the ability to uh, fight off infection. And our present theory, uh, working theory, is that the animals become immune suppressed first, and then they develop the fungal disease second. Uh, and ultimately this uh, uh, this progresses and and the animals typically die of other opportunistic diseases, not particularly lobomycosis, but it's kind of a a, a, a warning flag for what's happening in 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 this in these particular animals right because you were saying they're they're swimming in this toxic cocktail of of uh, you know from antibiotics to uh, mercury to all kinds of, and you, know, you were saying that there were herpes viruses that were in the water or something. Well, yeah, we're seeing new diseases. You know, we're, we're, we're linking it where there's a potential, certainly a potential link to some environmental contaminants like mercury. Um, the antibiotic-resistant bacteria probably has more of a public health significance because the these are bacteria that are, are found in these dolphins can be uh, put back in the environment, and humans could potentially get them back. Um, and then they're, they're resistant to antibiotics, which becomes problematic from a medical perspective. Um, 
so there there are a lot of issues going on, and and um, it becomes a very complex study, but it's one that's been very productive. How has it been productive? Well, it's been productive scientifically. We've we've generated um, many peer-reviewed papers on 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 the emerging diseases that we're seeing, um, particularly oral genital tumors and global mycosis. We've uh, Pro, pro, uh, we've prepared papers on antibiotic-resistant bacteria, mercury levels, and so the, the study's been very prolific as far as the scientific investigation. Yes, that's great. You're learning more and more about what's about the life of the dolphins and what's affecting them and how that can affect all of us, too. Well, I think um, that's the key here. This is just not a, um, this is just not a study dealing with... Um, the health of dolphins, but it's a study dealing with the health of the environment and then potentially our our health as well. Yes. Now there were a couple years when there were quite a few dolphins dying in Indian River Indian River Lagoon. Um, have, do you have any answers for that? For like two thousand one and two thousand eight seem to be particularly bad years for dolphins. Well, there have been what are called two unusual mortality events in the northern part of the lagoon, the middle and northern part. And um, the results of why those particular animals die have died are, are still elusive. Um, our studies dealt with uh, actually the, the study actually deals with going out, and what we do is we we collect wild dolphins. We give them kind of a Mayo Clinic physical on a boat. <coughs> we collect samples. You know, our team of veterinarians looks at them, uh, and they give them a good hands-on physical exam. Blood's taken, urine's taken, uh, all sorts of samples are taken, and then the animals are returned back to the wild unharmed. Uh, the beauty of this study is we know that animals in the Indian River, the majority of the dolphins there uh, have site fidelity, meaning they don't leave the area uh, for most of their lives. So whatever impacts that ecosystem will impact these these uh, high-trophic-level animals um, because they don't leave. So, and the, and the beauty of the study is we can actually go back and collect animals that we're interested in following that may have lobomycosis or may have a tumor, uh, and we're interested in following up from a health perspective, and which is very unusual for wildlife study because you don't usually get to do that. So right. the study is quite is um, is very interesting. Uh, Greg, we're going to take a break in a, in a, in a moment, and uh, when we come back, we want to learn more about uh, what people can do to help the dolphins of Indian River Lagoon and, um, you know, what an important ecosystem it is and how, what important, uh, and more about your, your uh, concept of dolphins as sentinels to uh, stand guard for humans about the environment. This is the Green Talk Network, helping to provide a sustainable future for us all. All together, all 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. For decades, we've been made aware of environmental issues such as climate change, overpopulation, and habitat destruction. How can we stay engaged and active in helping to prevent these issues from becoming insurmountable problems for our children and beyond? Tune in to The Earth Guardian. Each week, Sherilyn Viteze will cover the issues and discuss what is being done and how you can make a difference without too much effort to improve the quality of life for everyone on Earth. Tune in Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk. Network. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about the bottlenose dolphins of Indian River Lagoon in Florida, and with me is Dr. Greg Bossart. Uh, Greg is with the now with the Georgia Aquarium, and formerly spent many years with Harbor Branch, where he's continuing to study the Indian River Lagoon dolphins there. Uh, Greg, if people want to uh, contact you to learn more about what you're talking about on the show tonight, or anything to do with uh, Indian River Lagoon Dolphins, uh, how do they do that? Uh, they can certainly email me uh, at my email address, which is gbossert at georgiaaquarium.org. Thank you. And uh, before the break, uh, we were talking about, or you brought up the idea of dolphins as sentinels. 
Uh, this, this resonates really well with me because this program is called Ocean River Shields of Achilles, and I like the concept that Achilles was, uh, he had a shield made for him that had o- Ocean River, a sea in this, wrapped around the edges. And so we, uh, the shield bearers of the uh, Ocean River shield bearers are kind of like guardians of, of environmental protection. And, uh, and you've taken it to another step talking about sentinels. What was that? Tell us more about that. Well, it, it's um, a concept that's not new, um, and it's using um, uh, these these particular animals as sentinels or barometers for what's going on in the ecosystem, in the aquatic ecosystem, and then what can potentially not only reflect the health of that ecosystem but reflect potential issues with our own health. Um, and it turns out marine mammals are probably one of the best sentinels uh, because many species have very long lifespans, they feed at a high trophic level. Um, they, um, you know, they they are coastal species. So what impacts coastal ecosystems, you know, impacts these particular animals. In, in the Indian Rivers case, it's it's quite it's quite a nice setup because these animals don't tend to leave this area, so they spend their whole life in this one uh, ecosystem, which is very. At 40% of Florida's east coast, which is a huge area, um, so it, these become very good. These animals become very good barometers for what's help happening in central east coast Florida. Um, so it, it's very interesting. And probably the other thing um, is that both dolphins are, are charismatic megafauna. You know, they attract a lot of uh, strong human emotions and and are more likely to be observed for that reason and more likely uh, people pay attention to them uh, because they are uh, charismatic. So with all due respect, they're sort of like continuous sampling machines. They're out there consuming um, fish and, and, and seawater and accumulating in their bodies toxins and things that get caught up in the fat cells. And And over time, you might find you're finding unexpected chemicals in these sentinels. Well, yeah, in this particular ecosystem, the the one toxin that particularly stands out is mercury, including methylmercury. Um, we're not finding more. We're not finding contaminant levels um, as we see uh, high contaminant levels as we see in other places, um, or that are more industrial focused. So. The, the issue in the Indian River and it isn't so much primarily in industrial um, toxins like polychlorinated, um, uh, you know, the chlorinated hydrocarbons yeah. and things that man has been associated for years, but the mercury issue is very prominent in these particular animals, up to 21 times higher than what's permitted in fish consumed by humans. So if you could consume a dolphin, you wouldn't. It wouldn't be a good idea because it would be considered uh, toxic levels of mercury. One of the things we're looking at right now is how dolphins live with this, uh, with the, live with this toxin, and that's part of our our, our next five year study. But we've looked at over um, 260 animals now, and um, we actually uh, go out and give these guys a real good physical exam, take samples, and then release them, and we can follow them over the years and see how they progress. Well, it's a tribute to the Indian River, Indian River Lagoon that there are not um, other toxins showing up, like you said, from that you find in more industrial areas or in sperm whales in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. They're finding 
fire retardant chemicals and things that one would not expect to find out there. Well, uh, so yeah, we have to... a we have a sister study in Charleston that that um, has has not gone on for nearly as many years, but they, the dolphins in the Charleston area um, have have very high levels of, of polybrominated diphenyl ethers, PBDEs, and PFCs, and these are the PCBs. These are the legacy pollutants that are typically associated with with industry. So we we see those in other areas, but in the Indian River, these um, these emerging contaminants aren't, aren't as big an issue as they are in other areas, except, as I said, for the mercury issue. Right. And then there's the this problem of that's not really one stressor, one ingredient. It's the combination of all these different things, of many different things, that can make the dolphin more vulnerable or less capable of surviving, you know, what could be the fatal blow, I guess. Well, I think that's a good point, and it's often an overlooked point, um, are the synergistic effects of things like immune suppression, um, the burden level of mercury, the presence of um, emerging infectious disease. When you put all these things together, that becomes significant health. Um, those can become significant health issues that, that, are, that are additive and synergistic rather than single cause and effect, and that's where this thing becomes very, very complex. Yes. Now, I understand that there's mercury in our car tires, and our tires wear down to give us good traction, but in the wearing down, you're leaving bits of, tar- of tire on the parking lots and pavements, and that runoff and wash-off from those areas into the lagoon could be a contributor of mercury to the ecosystem. Well, I think uh, those are things that um, that obviously need to be looked at. The, one of the theories I've heard for the mercury issue in Florida is that it's a big atmospheric dump for uh, for mercury um, from from global uh, from global sources. And you know, mercury is not a. I mean, it's a well-known problem in in other uh, animals in Florida. In fish and, and other species, so this isn't um, this isn't startling, but certainly the levels in, in these dolphins, which are are piscivorous, these animals eat fish their whole lives, um, and that's uh, apparently where this is coming from. And the fish spend most of their lives in the lagoon as well. Well, a lot of them do. Yes, yep. They're not eating stripers and things that come in and out. <laughs> yeah, not so much. Fascinating. So what what can uh, the citizen do to help, uh, if they want to help make a difference or help alleviate some of the suffering that these dolphins may be going under? Well, I think the first step is uh, in, in what we're doing, it, uh, you know, through this study now at Harbor Branch at Florida Atlantic University and, you know, through the, the collaboration now with Georgia Aquarium, is that um, we first have to educate the public that this is an issue and then we have to uh, educate the uh, legislators and regulators who, who control, um, you know, what's happening in this ecosystem. And, right. You know, this is still a brand. New, this is still a very, uh, a very uh, study in its infancy. It's, it's uh, only been operating now for, you know, uh, since 2003, and we're, we've uh, generated quite a bit of um, peer-reviewed research. Um, but now it's time to, you know, as we're doing right now, is to disseminate these findings to 
to right. uh, not only the general public but the people that, that uh, regulate and legislate how the, this ecosystem is, uh, is, is managed. You're stressed, yeah. I, I think that's the first step, and <laughs> the public awareness is, is a big point and a big part of this. Um, well, this is excellent. Let's just summarize. Could you repeat these, the issues that are at stake? You, you mentioned mercury in the water. There were like five of well, them. Well, we're seeing multiple issues. We're seeing emerging diseases. We're seeing sexually yep. transmitted orogenital tumors. We're seeing um, very high numbers of, uh, of, of fungal disease that is, is only shared between dolphins and humans. We're seeing antibiotic-resistant bacteria that is apparently uh, being impacted by sewage and, and outflow discharge into the lagoon. And we're seeing uh, contaminants particularly in this case, very high levels of mercury. And, and when you combine all these together, um, you create a worrisome health condition, not only for these dolphins, but for the health of the ecosystem and the potentially the people that live near it. Yes. And also, of course, people need to remember that it isn't just one problem. It's, it's multiple problems, and it's going to require multiple actions to address, you know, all of those, each of those can kind of break out to its own source and, and way to repair it. Absolutely. Well, it's just fascinating. It must be just great to get out and see the dolphins. It is alarming to see that them having, you know, infections on their skin and stuff. But um, I, I bet you like your work. I bet it's pretty, on, on, the, on the whole pretty nice to get out there, isn't it? Oh, I've been very blessed in my life to do this kind of work, so I enjoy it, yes. Well, Greg Bossard, I want to thank you for telling us about the Indian River Lagoon, bottlenose dolphins, and the problems they're facing. And uh, it comes down to, you know, we really have to, us humans have to be careful about anything that we let loose into the environment that could end up in uh, lagoons and in coastal waterways. Uh, And I want to thank you for the the educational experience here. Uh, Thank you. You're welcome. Um, after the break, uh, we're going to look. We're going to talk about the Gulf of Mexico and how there's how that area is suffering from a, a different kind of incursion of oil from the oil spill. Listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and O 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Ready to lift your spirit? Join Karen Tatanich every week for Spirit Connections. Karen will share with you the power of energy work. It can get you through the good times and the tough times. Karen will bring together stories of hope and good news based on her work with all aspects of energy. There are people and companies out there that are bringing joy to our planet. You'll learn about the power of spirit at home, at work, and at play. Spirit Connections is broadcast live Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on 7th Wave Network. It's football, pop culture, and everything in between. Get ready for the game plan with Anthony Heron, a.k.a. Big Ant. Anthony has a background in college and professional football and brings the player, coach, and broadcaster perspective to this weekly roundup of the top sports news and events. Big Ant wants to hear from you, too. Tune in to the game plan with Anthony Heron every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific time on the voice america sports channel it's game time thank you for listening to the green talk network help to spread the green by involving your family and friends you're doing your part now help them think green spread the green the green talk network You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back to talk about ginormous ocean plumes in the Gulf of Mexico and what they may contain. And with me is uh, Aaron Files, who's the campaign director of the Gulf Restoration Network. Hello, Aaron. Hey there, Rob. How are you? Now, are you calling from Louisiana? I am, yeah. I'm, I'm in New Orleans. And if people want to know more about the good work of Gulf Restoration Network, and I totally urge you to do so, what should they do? Uh, well, they should check out our website, of course, is the easiest way. We're online at healthygulf.org. Uh, we've also created uh, an action page if you want to send an email message about the BP drilling disaster, and that's at bpdrillingdisaster.org. Because, of course, that's an issue we've been focused on for the past 120 days or so. And, uh, and that's connected to your homepage, healthygulf.org. Yeah, I urge people to do that. If you think of anything about this program or if you learn anything from Aaron during this show, please go to healthygulf.org and and, and write some comments because that's what policymakers, they they listen to comments. They they get positive signatures, but a a, a good told comment really resonates longly with decision makers. 
Absolutely. And I think there's a lot we need to do in the wake of this disaster to really learn from it, respond to it, and keep, uh, keep it from happening ever again. And the, the politicians, decision makers, need to know that people outside the Gulf continue to care about this because the media is saying, oh, we've moved on to other stories. So it's important if you're listening and you live away from the Gulf to, uh, to visit the uh, healthygulf.org, healthygulf.org, and, um, and express yourself. Or you can uh, join us at oceanriver.org as well. But um, particularly in this case, because um, the media is just, just dropping the story, uh, unless it's, it's outlandish stuff. Like, what's the latest on that? Well, we certainly have some interesting news. Uh, yeah. This is an enormous science experiment, and it's happening in real time in front of our eyes, and there's a lot of research happening right now, which I think is, is critical, because we just don't know what, you know what this could do and what the ultimate outcome is going to be for the Gulf of Mexico, other than we know, there's, you know, we know it's taking a hit. We know the productivity of the Gulf is, is taking a hit. We just don't know how significant that's going to be and how long-lasting. But research came out just uh, just this week. So yesterday, uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory announced that they had basically they could not find the deep water plume. Uh, now that the oil has stopped flowing, uh, it's been uh, many days since any new oil has come into the Gulf of Mexico, and their measurements uh, of the dispersed oil at the subsea level uh, couldn't find uh, really any, uh, and so. That was, I think, some very good news. Uh, we will, you know, kind of watch and see the scientific process proceed and make sure that that is indeed the case. But what they are finding, finding is that some microorganisms that they didn't even know existed before uh, have adapted to life in the Gulf of Mexico, which, of course, is an oily ecosystem. There are natural seeps that put out about an Exxon Valdez worth of oil into the Gulf throughout the Gulf every year. Of course, this is what, what we're talking about here is about 15 uh, Exxon Valdez worth of oil, so it's a huge uh, challenge to that ecosystem. But what we do, uh, what we're beginning to understand is that there were bugs, microorganisms that could help consume that oil, even in the very deep reaches of the Gulf, which you know a lot colder, more like five degrees uh, uh, centigrade, 41 degrees, which is a lot, lot colder than the surface, uh, which a lot of people expected the oil to degrade pretty quickly up there because of that that temperature. Far different than Alaska and the Valdez example. But uh, So this is some good news, but then just last week, USF, University of Southern Florida, they did a cruise and found that the oil had reached as far as the DeSoto Canyon, which is some really important uh, deep water habitat. It's a habitat that's used by a lot of our reef fish in the Gulf of Mexico and an important uh, spawning area for these reef fish like uh, our snappers and, uh, and, and grouper species. So, uh, you know, oil's been there. They actually measured some of the toxicity as well and found that the phytoplankton, you know, the kind of the, the, the plants uh, that are really the, you know, the building blocks for life in the Gulf of Mexico, that the phytoplankton was pretty uh, heavily impacted by, by the dispersant. So that dispersant toxicity and about 1.8 million gallons of dispersant had been put out there in the Gulf of Mexico and that that was having an impact on the phytoplankton. And we're also seeing that it's in the uh, in the larval uh, crabs. They call them megalops. They're the larval yeah. stage of blue crab. And now research has shown that oil, that dispersed oil, has you know made it across the biological barrier and is in fact inside these crab larvae. The question remains: What will that do as the larvae seek to move to the next uh, stage of life? And will it 
have some effect on the productivity and how many of the larvae move on. Uh, researchers aren't sure at this point, but again, it's an ongoing science experiment. We're learning as we go, and you know, as they responded to this disaster, they had really no idea what they were doing. And it was all just kind of throwing everything at, at a horrible situation, hoping to make it marginally better. Uh, and well, at this point, the problem kind of mag- kind of bioaccumulates because, you know, you, you, yes, it affects the phytoplankton, and and interesting that it's in the blue crab larvae, um, and hopefully the blue crabs will survive. But if they do, those that are eaten by uh, wolf fish and codfish that you know these fish that crunch on stuff on the bottom of the ocean there. Um, are going to take. They may take in some of those uh, some of those toxins from uh, the oil chemicals, and and pass it on up the food chain. Yeah, yeah. And at this point, NOAA has been um, well. NOAA has been terribly transparent what they've done, but in their in their discussion about that concern, the bioaccumulation, bioaccumulation, and biomagnification. You know, you know, their take on it is that oil isn't going to accumulate up the food chain. These hydrocarbons. Uh, will not accumulate up the food chain, and that they, by and oh, large, at least in, in fin fish, you know, they they pass through the system pretty quickly. Uh, less quickly for things like oysters, and kind of in the middle for things like uh, crab and shrimp. So again, it's going to be you know watching and studying. That at this point, the tests they've done on Gulf seafood, uh, experts I trust say that you know they're they're all getting getting them a thumbs up, and they aren't finding hydrocarbons, they aren't finding the PAHs in the fish they're harvesting right now. And, but you nailed it, Rob. The question will be, will it work its way up the food chain? Uh, you know, if we're seeing it in the larval fish, will we see it you know, as those larval fish are consumed or as those larval fish move to the next uh, life stage? And again, we're just going to need to watch very closely and figure this out. I, mean, I think the, the excellent example here that's most relevant in my mind is the, uh, the herring uh, example. So herring... You know, they thought that it had escaped uh, the worst impacts of the oil. Uh, they opened up a fishery, and then four years later, the, the stock just absolutely crashed and has not even recovered at this point. Uh, many people, uh, scientists, argue that the reason that happened is because when they were affected by the oil, uh, it didn't kill them all outright, but it, it weakened their immune system, and then they got hit by uh, a disease that had never been seen before. And so that disease uh, hit a, a weakened uh, population, and at the same time, they were opening uh, the fishery, you know, adding an additional pressure and stress to that population. Uh, the population just really couldn't ever recover. So right now, as we seek, to, you know, we're seeing a lot of gold fisheries opened up. Uh, Menhaden, uh, which most people don't know much about, but it's a, uh, also called a pogey down here, and it's a fish that's about six inches long. They catch them. It's actually the second largest fishery by weight in the Gulf of. Mexico, I'm sorry, the largest fishery in weight by the Gulf of, in the Gulf of Mexico, second largest by weight in the country. Uh, they catch these fish to grind them up uh, and use the oil and the, the, uh, the ground-up fish for things like dog food and uh, industrial uses. So no one eats uh, Menhaden directly, but the issue here is that Menhaden actually are filter feeders. They eat this phytoplankton we were just talking about and the zooplankton as well. So they they would be key in actually being exposed to a lot of this oil and this dispersed oil at the surface as well, uh, and they don't have any catch limits on this this fishery. They run it wide open for about six months out of the year, uh, and so without catch limits and without a really you know thoughtful uh, population assessment, we could miss some important signs that the fishery was responding to the oil and not responding well. Uh, 
So right, again, there's so many possible things to happen. Uh, you know, we're finding in, in other, like the plastic bottle chemicals have uh, endocrine disruptive uh, aspects to them. And, you know, the reproduction of fish could be at stake, and that would be a difficult thing to sort out from the other stressors that are hitting fish populations. Right. I mean, the Gulf's clearly a very dynamic system, and there's so, you know, a lot of noise in that ecosystem to be able to pick out, you know, what yeah. exactly is caused by what. Uh, we do know that, you know, we're losing wetlands in coastal Louisiana at a staggering rate. Lose about a football field worth of coastal wetlands every 45 minutes uh, due to how we've managed the Mississippi River. We put levees and jetties on the river, which you know, very good for my house uptown and for the farmers up in the Midwest that want to get their grain to market, but not very good for the ecosystem of the coastal wetlands that that river built through spring floods. Right. And then we came in behind the levees and the jetties and dredged uh, thousands of miles of oil and gas canals. And those oil and gas canals really just hastened the loss of those wetlands. Uh, and so now we're, again, we've got this wetlands loss issue, which ironically enough, as those wetlands degrade, they create more edge. So many people are actually saying that we're, gonna, we're seeing increased productivity uh, as the wetlands degrade, but we're going to see a tipping point uh, shortly uh, when uh, we're going to see fisheries crash. Because of course, you know, all these fisheries, they need the wetlands. They need that habitat at some Absolutely some need the wetlands. I want to get in that I like eating fish, and I urge people, if they're worried about um, these toxins that accumulate up the food chain, the safest thing to do is eat smaller fish. The smaller fish, the canned tuna fish is yellowfin tuna, and it's lower on the food chain than the sashimi bluefin tuna, and therefore it'll have a 1,000 times less of any toxins because it's that much lower in the food chain. So do eat fish and seafood, um, and uh, as always, you know, we need to be, vigilant about making sure the stuff smells good, but uh, I'm eating seafood as much as ever. Yeah, and I, you know, and I, I want to support our gold fishermen, so I want to be able to say, you know, this is being managed well, and we've been very you know, cautious, and I think they have. They've, done, they've run a lot of tests. Absolutely, yeah. Haven't found anything. So I think if it's on the market, it's safe, and it's probably safer than it's ever been. Not that it was ever bad, but you know the amount of eyes that are now on this, yeah. <laughs> this, this harvest is crazy compared to what was on it before. And if you're trying to be safe and, okay, well, I'm going to avoid the Gulf, you know, what that likely means is you're buying imported shrimp. And I'll tell you what, that stuff's not inspected at all. So uh, I think stick with the Gulf, uh, you know, but certainly advocate for um, a proper response here and an ongoing scientific, you know, uh, research to make sure that they stay safe and that they're managed effectively and that we keep an eye open for the, the impacts we know are going to happen. It's just a matter of we don't know exactly how they're going to show up. You know, you put Aaron, out we're out of time. I want to thank you, and we'll be back after the break. Great. Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. When planning for the future, we need to look at all the facets, environmental, humanitarian, and social. There are so many challenges that we face in keeping everything straight and environmentally sound. That's where the deliberacy, taking deliberate actions to benefit all, comes in. Join your host, author Christopher Eldridge, every weekend for a look at the missing cornerstone that is lacking in the solutions to the challenges we face every day. Listen Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back talking about the Gulf of Mexico with Gulf Restoration Network uh, campaign director Aaron Viles. Uh, Aaron, um, thank you for all this information about what's happening in the Gulf. Um, people do really care, and where can they go to uh, express their concern? I think the easiest thing to do is just head to our website. It's healthygulf.org, and they can learn about what we're doing down here for our field monitoring programs, and take action to help support the advocacy necessary to really learn from this disaster. Thanks so much, Rob. Yours is a sterling group. I'm so glad that you took the time to talk with us. I urge everyone to do that. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for being on the show with us. We're going to turn now to um, Ocean Champions, and uh, Chris Laughlin is with us from, who was with us the last episode. Chris, um, last time we were talking uh, was with uh, Margot Pellegrino. You got any news on Margot's uh, voyage? Yes, and, and <clears throat> thanks for having me on your show again today, Rob. Uh, Margot paddled into Santa Cruz Harbor yesterday at about 2 o'clock. There were about 20 folks there to warmly welcome her, and it was actually record temperatures yesterday here, so it was truly a very warm welcome. <laughs> Ocean Champions presented her with a Hawaiian lei, while the Ukulele Club of Santa Cruz provided some Hawaiian music, and oh, at great. the request of her one-woman land-based crew, June Bernard, who you spoke with, um, we also had a pint of Ben and Jerry's Caramel Sutra 
and a cold IPA waiting for her, and she was just ecstatic. (laughs) (laughs) How'd she look? She looked great. She was a little sunburned. She's not used to being in so much sun because in Washington and Oregon, paddling down, she's had mostly fog. And I think uh, just as she was coming south from the Bay Area, she she started to hit quite a bit more sun. Um, So other than being a little sunburned, she looked absolutely great. Well, that's great. Do we have to send her hats or something? Yes, actually. We had a little gift bag for her yesterday. She got an Ocean Champions visor, a Surf Raider hat, and a Save Our Shores t-shirt. Oh, that's fabulous. Chris, thanks for updating us about Margot Pellegrino's trip. Uh, if you'd like to hear the episode of last time, uh, you can uh, tune into that um, at this website. And um, Chris, thanks a lot. Sure. Thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, Mike Dunmire is with us. Mike, um, How's the, uh, I guess they're on recess now, and uh, what do we see as challenges, you know, coming into the fall with uh, our ocean champions, our ocean well, conservation I mean, in general? Yeah, and it's great to have uh, the guests that you've had on so far, Rob, because you highlight some of the challenges that we face with everything that's going on in the Gulf, and then we've got Chris talking about, you know, some of the human side of, of uh, enjoying the, the, the oceans through paddling and things like that while also raising awareness. And what we're trying to do is translate that concern for the ocean to action. Uh, and there are a few things we've got that we're really going to push hard in the fall. Uh, one is that we need to pass our harmful algal bloom and hypoxia bill. It's passed in the House, and right now we believe that we've got it on a vehicle, a uh, Land and Water Act, that may move in the Senate in, uh, in September or maybe after the election. Uh, this bill would deal with some of the problems that you see in the Gulf with those giant dead zones that are exacerbated by the oil spill. So hopefully we can get that done, get some good funding and research directed to that growing problem. Um, we're also working on finalizing uh, the appropriation for the Catch Shares initiative. This is a, a great program that aligns the environmental, the uh, uh, economic interests of the fishermen with the environmental interests of the fishery, and uh, the Obama administration has been interested in funding the, the development of fisheries management infrastructure for this program. Great way to help uh, help save some challenged fisheries while keeping fishermen in the water. Uh, and then uh, the biggest issue, Rob, is that we just got the Clear Act uh, out of the House, and that was the House side response to all the bad stuff that's going on in the Gulf. Uh, the reform the uh, Minerals Management Service by statute to reform the processes for uh, approving leases and doing inspections and things like that, Uh, but most importantly to establish for the first time what could be about a billion-dollar-a-year ocean conservation fund. Uh, That is out of the House, thanks to one of our champions, Nick Rahal from West Virginia. Now we're focusing on getting comparable legislation out of the Senate, and Majority Leader Reid has a package that he is pushing, and what we want to do is make sure that we get the strong components from the CLEAR Act included in Majority Leader Reed's bill and then get that bill moved. But as you know, Rob, getting anything done in the Senate is a massive, massive challenge these days, Uh, so there's some hard work ahead there. People who want to support this must go to oceanchampions.org, right? Absolutely. You can find a lot of great information there as well as... uh, yeah, what we do is we help elect the good folks that will uh, that will move things like this, that care about the oceans, that will direct uh, resources towards keeping them healthy. 
uh, and, and we can't do it without uh, your support as well. So uh, helping support Ocean Champions is a great thing for the oceans also. And uh, as you mentioned, Rob, you, uh, you know, who you have in the Congress really determines what you're going to get out of the Congress. And yeah. we've got a, uh, this being an election year, we've got a few races that are very critical that we're following. And I don't know how we're doing on time, but I'd love to mention a couple things about that. Yeah, we've got three minutes for that. Fabulous. I will do it tightly. So, uh, first, up in your neck of the woods in New Hampshire, we are endorsing Paul Hodes in a run for the Senate. Now, Mr. Hodes, as a congressman, has been a huge proponent of green energy uh, because he understands the effect it's having on climate, but also understands the ocean acidification problem that results from having too much CO2 in the air as well. Uh, he is running against a drill, baby drill, global warming denier or likely will, uh, the, the leader on the Republican side is uh, Kelly Ayotte, who uh, really comes on the wrong side of those ocean issues. Uh, and so who wins that race will really have a profound effect for what happens in the oceans. Similarly, in, uh, on the House side, in Maryland's first district, we've endorsed uh, Frank Craddaville, who's the incumbent. Uh, he, again, he's in a district that uh, McCain beat Obama by 18 points. You can see that he's got a very conservative district, but he was still willing to take a tough climate vote and has been great on ocean issues. And he is running against a guy named Andy Harris, who would literally be Richard Pombo Jr. Um, he's been a, a Maryland state senator who's consistently voted against measures to clean up the bay, uh, taking phosphorus out and things like that. He's voted against green energy, against improved auto emission standards. He'd be dangerous. Uh, so we're hoping that we can help Mr. Craddaville win again there. And then in the Senate, again, Barbara Boxer, one of the you know, true uber ocean champions, is running up against Carly Fiorina, who in addition to you know, really showing no talent as a CEO, uh, has been uh, a drill baby drill uh, proponent even in the state of California, even after what's going on in the Gulf. So again, three races that will really matter for the oceans. Voting matters. Voting for the ocean champions really matters. Yes, and and again, uh, to follow this this breaking news of the, how these candidates, these ocean champions are doing, uh, oceanchampions.org is the way to go. Uh, looks like we're going to have an active fall trying to uh, to shore up um, so many assaults on on ecosystems and on politicians. Absolutely, Mike. We're running out of time again. It's been a pleasure talking with you about the politics on Capitol Hill for ocean conservation. And I look forward to um, getting learning more next episode of Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Thanks for listening. again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then.
thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.